Let's pray as we open the word together. Father, we confess that as we open this word, we need eyes from you to see, and we need a heart uh, from you to believe and to be transformed. And so we ask this morning that you would um, just be with us and unite our hearts to your word, that you would show us uh, your word and show us what you would have uh, for us to understand this morning and apply to our lives. We pray for your help in Christ's name. Amen. When's the last time that you took a detour? Detours are often inconvenient. They are the opposite of a shortcut. They are the long cut. You never plan for a detour. And depends on you if you're retired and you got more time than you used to have. It may not bother you as much. But if you just cut it close, if you only give yourself enough time to get somewhere and then a detour comes, it's one of the most frustrating things because you know a detour adds time. Detours are most often unwelcome, but you know there's reason for detours, right? Whether it's an emergency or sometimes construction, you know detours are necessary, but always inconvenient, always out of the way. There's sometimes hidden blessings in detours. Sometimes you'll discover a nice quaint town on your way or a beautiful scenic drive that you had not planned for. So detours aren't all bad, but for the most part, they are inconvenient or definitely not sought after. Maybe you have sought after a detour for a friend, someone you love, you know. You're going one place and they ask, hey, would you mind stopping off somewhere else? I know it's kind of out of your way. And so you'll do it. You'll take a detour for someone you love. You'll, you'll add extra time to your drive. You'll add extra miles to the journey. In order to um, express love to someone, you'll go out of your way. Because that's what a detour is, isn't it? Going out of your way. It takes uh, out of what you had planned, what you desire, what necessarily you want, and it's going the opposite direction. We're going to see the Apostle Paul in our text this morning taking a generous detour. And the generous detour was not just in Paul and his time and the kilometers he put in, but there was generosity, not just on his part, but the part of the believers that he's delivering on behalf of. And so if you want to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 15, we're going to see this generous detour of Paul and all that is captivated in this generous detour. And the amazing thing is you do not find Paul grumbling or complaining. You find Paul pursuing it in love, in love. Romans chapter 15 is where it'll be found. And I'll read from verse 22 for uh, just the verse prior. We'll focus today on verse 23 and forward. Romans 15, beginning at verse 22. Paul has just said, you know, he has um, gone and fulfilled his ministry from Jerusalem all the way to around Illyricum. And he's been preaching the gospel where Christ has never been named. He's been going to places that need to hear because they've never, ever heard of Christ. And so he was going and doing that, even though he wanted to be in Rome with the believers there to be mutually encouraged, chapter 1 tells us, that, that they would encourage him as much as he might encourage them. So he wanted to be in Rome at this church. But instead, he said, there was people who needed to hear of Christ. And so I took that route and I went to them. 
And now Paul is still not in Rome when he's writing this letter to this church. He's not just being recorded as he's preaching a sermon at the church in Rome. Paul, it is thought that he is in Corinth writing this letter to the church at Rome. So he's still not there. He's still not arrived. And he mentions that. He says, I I hope to come to you. But here he says, I've been hindered from coming to you. Look at verse 22. This is the reason why I've so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions that he just mentioned, and since I've longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain. And I hope to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought to also be of service to them in material blessings. When therefore I've completed this and have delivered them what I have collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. This is God's word. It's amazing. So Paul expresses, even in this passage, he's already expressed a number of times in this book, how much he wants to be in Rome, how much he wants to be with these people. He's longed to come to them for so long. And yet he says, now, even though my work's done in, um, in, to Illyricum in this area, in, in Asia Minor, and now in Corinth, in Macedonia, he says, I have to go to Jerusalem. I have to go to Jerusalem. I have to take a detour. It is an over 3,000 kilometer detour. Now, Paul did not have airplanes or automobiles to make a 3,000 kilometer detour but it was a generous detour. And he went, which is so interesting, even veering from what he said was his current ministry, his current mission was to go where Christ had never been named. That's why he wanted to go to Spain. He wanted to go there to to be able to preach all the way from Corinth, which is the south of Greece. He wanted to go up and around through Rome and down into uh, Spain. And yet he says, I have to go the opposite direction. I'm going to take the long way around. I have to go all the way from Greece, all the way back to Israel, to Jerusalem, because they need help. So you see at the very outset, Paul's generosity in the sacrifice, he's not being sent that way by anyone. He could technically give what he's taking to Jerusalem to someone else. He'll just send a messenger. He didn't have FedEx then, but he did have friends. So he could have sent it with someone else, but Paul felt compelled to go. He, he, he said, I, I must go to Jerusalem to make sure that this gift gets there. Look again at verse 23. I'm gonna re, the, we're going to focus on 23 through 29. But he mentioned that he, his work was kind of done in this region, and he's speaking even of the region where he was in, in Corinth. That was in the region of Achaia, in the south, south of Macedonia. And he says, my work here is done in this region. I hope to see you in passing when I go to Spain, to be helped on my journey. So he's saying, my, I have a twofold desire to come to Rome on my way to Spain. I'm going to need help. Not just the encouragement, not just the mutual upbuilding and, and the, the friendship and the fellowship, but I'm going to need financial help. Paul admits that in going through Rome. He says, I'm going to need your, 
your generosity there for the Spain journey, but I'm not coming to you yet. And I've already done some collecting in Macedonia and Achaia. He says, at present, verse 25, at present, however, although I want to come to you, I long to come to you, I have something else to do first. I have a detour. I am going to Jerusalem, bringing aid for the saints. So there in verse 25, we get a taste of the situation. And we know from church history that at that time, there was a great famine in the land in Jerusalem and around Israel and Palestine. There was a great famine in the land. So they would have been in desperate need financially. They were poor. They were hungry. And Paul, it's interesting, right? Because we, we looked earlier in this chapter how he felt called and compelled. He had this holy ambition from God to go to people who were not the Jewish Israelite people, not the people in Jerusalem. He felt called and compelled to go. And so he did. But when he heard of their need, he could do nothing but stay away. Even though his ministry was to the Gentiles, to the people who had never heard of Jesus, there's no way he could neglect his brothers and sisters in Christ who had a great need. And so he told the churches about it, and he said, they are hurting in Jerusalem. And so they gave. He says, they, I need to bring this aid. They need our help. And verse 26, he tells how uh, Macedonia, the churches in the region, not just one church, but the region, uh, the churches there and Achaia, they have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. They've made a contribution, and they've done it with great pleasure and delight. They've been pleased to do this. It wasn't something that they were uh, hammered to do or felt obligated to do. Someone forced them to do. They felt pleased to do it. It was a delight to donate to the church at Jerusalem. These saints in need, once they heard, they knew that they, they couldn't but help them. What's amazing about the churches in Macedonia, you may be saying, well, maybe they're rich. Maybe it was easy for them to give, and they just gave a little extra off the top. And that was the case for some people. We know that uh, in that region, there was the church at Philippi, and Lydia was a seller of purple. She was a wealthy woman. She pretty much funded the church at Philippi. So she would have given generously. We know she was a generous woman. But there were people in Macedonia who were poor, very poor. Let me read to you Paul accounts of this in the letter of 2 Corinthians. If you want to turn and follow along, if not, just listen very carefully. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul accounts of this generosity of this Macedonian church. 2 Corinthians 8 says this, we want you to know, brothers, because remember, he's in Corinth writing to the Romans. So at this time, when he was writing to the church at Corinth, he's telling them about the generosity of the Macedonians. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, beginning at verse 1. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity. I'm just going to read that again and highlight some of those words. It's incredible. In a severe test of affliction, things were not easy in the church at Macedonia. Things were hard, severe test of affliction. But they had abundance of joy. And it's amazing. It says, 
They overflowed in a wealth of generosity, a wealth of generosity. And that flowed out of two things, abundance of joy, a delight, but also it flowed out of their extreme poverty. That is very interesting. Their wealth of generosity flowed out of their extraordinary extreme, gener- extreme poverty. And you know the story where uh, Jesus, he sees this poor woman who had nothing give, just a penny. What did he say? That she was more generous and she gave more to the kingdom of God than the guy who had millions to give away. Because out of her poverty, out of what she needed, she would have needed that to survive. But that's where true generosity flows, is out of sacrifice, right? So that's what we see here at the church in Macedonia. In a severe test of, test of affliction, their abundance of joy, so delight, and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity. For they gave according to their means, he says, as I can testify, beyond their means. How do you give beyond your means? That means you literally sacrificing meals to give them to someone else. They gave beyond their means. What they needed to pay for things that they actually needed, they gave. They gave beyond their means. They didn't have the means to just donate extra or that was their coffee money. That was their bread money. That was what they needed to survive, but they did it with an abundance of joy. Out of their extreme poverty, a wealth of generosity beyond their means, he says, um, of their own accord. It wasn't that they were, uh, somebody twisted their arm. He says it was in their own accord. He says, they begged us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. They begged us. You know, Paul and those with him would have said, no, 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 it's okay. You guys don't need to, you don't need to give. We know that you have extreme poverty, um, that you don't have anything to give. We see that, we know that. So they, we understand that you can't give to the saints at Jerusalem right now. And he says that those in Macedonia begged. They begged to be able to give. Let us give. And it says, for the favor, the favor of taking part, They wanted to take part in the relief of the saints of their own accord. He says, this is not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. They gave themselves fully, wholly. That's where the Macedonia's generosity flowed out of, giving themselves to the Lord fully and knowing that he would care for them and he would provide for even what they had given away. That if they needed something, God would provide. They, they really had a deep and abiding trust in the Lord. And that's why they had the abundance of joy. Even though they were extremely impoverished themselves, they had abundance of joy as they got to partake in serving others, sacrificing for others, being generous to others. So Paul, out of this example, when telling the church at Corinth, he carries on in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 7. He says, As you excel in everything, in faith and in speech, in knowledge and in all earnestness, and in your love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. Excel in generosity, which he calls an act of grace, which is so true, isn't it? You think about the grace of God towards us, Something we do not deserve is given to us. Well, 
who knows if people deserved it or didn't deserve it. Who knows what they might do with it. But it was an act of grace because you gave. And it was, a, it was about generosity and not about how it would be used. And that's kind of sometimes the true test of generosity is, and I know it's hard because we have to be wise and good stewards of our finances, but if you are generous to someone and you get offended by what they spend it on, it was not true generosity. Because it, it, when you're generous to someone and you give it to them because they're in need, uh, generosity says it, it's yours. And, and obviously we pray and we hope that they spend it wisely and we need to obviously walk with some people to do that. Some people in homeless situations are poor managers, managers of money. And so you help them sp- spend money wisely, but if they misspend it, doesn't mean you get the right to be angry about it. True test of generosity is that you've given at an abundance of joy and, and you've just released that. That's generosity. That's a true generosity. It's an act of grace. Someone may or may not be deserving of it, but you serve them anyways. Paul carries on in 2 Corinthians and then in chapter 9, uh, verse 6. And he, and he says this, and you'll, you'll notice this. This is a recognizable phrase which Jesus mentioned as well. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will reap bountifully. If you give generously, you will have more than you ever need. It may not be material, may not be financial, but you will have more joy as did the Macedonians. And he carries on to tell about the heart of the giver. Also a well-known passage, 2 Corinthians 9, 7. Each one of you must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Give as you have decided in your own heart. You know, there's the Old Testament principle of the tithes, 10%. It's a good principle, but you, you must not give 10%. You, you might give more. You might give 20, 30, 30 to God or God's mission or to, to needy saints. You might give less. You need to decide in your own heart, but not reluctantly. Not reluctantly and not under compulsion, not with someone twisting your arm telling you what you must do. You must decide in your own heart what to give. And when you do, it'll produce a cheerful giver. For God loves a cheerful giver. And you see that at the church in Macedonia. At an abundance of joy, they begged for the favor of giving. Paul says the heart of that person, the heart of a generous person is cheerful. The Apostle Paul never once complained about the generous detours he needed to take time and time again for other people. You never once hear Paul talk about the cost. Like, think about what it actually cost Paul years and years to take a journey like that. Thousands of kilometers. All those days needing to find food or pay for food. Lodging, if he lodged anywhere. Think of the cost to Paul, but do you ever hear Paul mention the cost? Never. He never complains about the cost that it was on his body physically to walk or to ride a donkey or to ride a camel. He doesn't ever talk about the cost. He doesn't say, pity me in this cost. Paul was a cheerful giver. He delighted in being generous with his time 
with his gifts that God has given him, with his finances, with everything he had. God loves a cheerful giver. He carries on in 2 Corinthians 9. says, You'll be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only in supplying the needs of the saints, but also overflowing in many thanks to God. This is the reason I have great joy in my generosity is because not only does it supply needs, people are in need and, and I get to meet that need. It says more than that, God gets the thanks. God gets the thanks. God gets the glory. He goes on. By their approval of this service, interesting how he just talks about generosity as a service, like you're serving someone by just being generous. By their service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ. It comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ. Do you believe he's been generous to you spiritually? You believe you have more than you could ever deserve spiritually. It's your confession of the gospel is, yes, I am a poor and needy sinner. I am weak and frail. I have nothing to bring to God. I am desolate. I am dead in my trespasses and sins. But yet God has richly blessed me, given me more than I can ever imagine. Forgiveness, grace, life eternal, newness and sanctification, hope. All that God has given me was out of his generosity towards me. And I confess the gospel of Christ that I deserved not one ounce of it. It was only by grace alone that I received Christ. So he says, out of your confession of the gospel and the generosity of your contribution, they long and they pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. It's the inexpressible gift of God's grace to you that produces this kind of sacrifice. When you realize what Christ has sacrificed on your behalf, you will not, in your lifetime, very likely give up your life for someone else. It won't happen. And even if you did, it would not forgive their sin. It would not eliminate their debt. It wouldn't do anything like that. You wouldn't do that. You wouldn't be able to. That was Christ's role for you, to die on your behalf so that your sin debt could be settled with God. This is an inexpressible gift of God's generosity, which produces in us something. It produces in us what we see at the church of Macedonia, these generous believers. They gave beyond their means. Out of the abundance of their joy and the extreme poverty, they gave and they gave because they saw a need. And they thought, we cannot let our saints who don't have support we can't let them suffer. So they allowed Paul to take this gift to the church at Jerusalem. And he says that, back, looking back at our, our chapter in Romans here, verse 26, For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. Verse 27, For they were pleased to do it. So there you go. There's the delight, and we've seen that expressed in 2 Corinthians. Their delight, right? But there's also a duty. They also felt a duty to do it. Verse 27, they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. 
they owe it to them. They felt a, a duty to make sure that they were contributing to the needs of the saints in Jerusalem, these Jewish believers. It tells us why. It says, For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, that is, they are now these Gentiles who were not part of the family of God, they were alien to the family of God, have been welcomed into the family of God. They share in the spiritual blessings of these Jewish believers. It says, then they ought also to be a service for them in their material blessings. They feel like we have been welcomed into the family of God, your family. Spiritually, we have the spiritual blessings which are more than we could ever ask for and they're eternal in value. And so we ought to, we feel obligated, not in a bad way, but a good way, a duty to share with you our material blessings. And the amazing thing is what that would produce in those Jewish believers. Because sometimes as we read the New Testament, we realize that there is a bit of uh, a rift in between some Jewish believers and Gentiles, those who are not originally part of God's uh, people, right? They were not Jewish. They were not in his heritage. They didn't belong, but God through Christ welcomed them in. And so there was a bit of a, a discrepancy sometimes. And, and the Jews would have sometimes had a hard time welcoming Gentile believers. But now imagine... These Gentile believers, out of their poverty, giving generously to the, to the Jewish people because they say, we're your brothers and we're your sisters and we're not going to let you suffer. And as those Jewish believers in Jerusalem receive the gift, they're receiving the gift and they're declaring unity. They're declaring the, the family of God because of one thing, the Lord Jesus Christ and how he's transformed all of them. It's amazing what it produces, as Paul recounted to the Corinthians. He says it produces in them not just a supply for them, but also thanksgiving in them for you and to the glory of God. It says they didn't only have a delight to do it, but they also felt a duty. Those two things are not opposite. Just because something's a duty doesn't mean you cannot delight in it. We see that. The church of Macedonia felt they needed to, they ought to give to Jerusalem but they felt an abundant joy in doing so. They were delighted to do it. They shared in this uh, gift that Paul was taking. And so then you see this generosity of these churches locally, but then Paul, in his generous detour, even though he desired to be in Rome for encouragement and to, to finish the mission, because it, it's thought that Paul really thought kind of the, the end of his mission was going to be Spain, um, but instead he says, I'm going to take this detour for the sake of these saints, for the sake of my kinsmen. Because you know, earlier in Romans, he says, I'd be willing to give up my own place in heaven for them, for, for other brothers who have not even believed in Jesus yet. I want them to see the generosity of the church of God. I want them to see what the gospel produces. It produces people who realize they don't deserve any of it. And they're going to give it all to God for his glory. It's amazing what God does in our hearts when we believe the gospel. He transforms us to be generous with our time, with our, our talents, with what we have, with our cars, our homes, our gifts, our abilities. God causes us to be generous for him to those who have need, to those who may or may not deserve it. It doesn't matter because it's saturated with the gospel, which says, I don't deserve it but Christ has given it anyways. When we come to Christ for forgiveness, he doesn't look at how much sin we have and say, well, that's too much. 
Your need is too great for me. He says, come. All who are burdened and heavy laden, come. And I'll give you rest. Come and I will take your sins upon myself. All of them. You're not asking too much of me. I'll take it all. And he stands before the throne of God and he's punished for it all. So that he may do that great exchange and he gives us his wealth of righteousness given to us. He, in his generosity, lavishes us with righteousness so that in the eyes of God the Father, the judge over all, we appear to be holy and righteous and pure and acceptable. That's what the gospel does. It is generous in all of its ways and it produces in us, obviously we can't forgive people's sins that way. We can't give them our righteousness. Our righteousness is filthy rags. It's not even good enough for us before God. Don't try to give righteousness to someone else. But instead, we can give of ourselves. As Paul said, that, that they gave of themselves first to the Lord and then to others. And that's the, even the greatest commandment, isn't it? That Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all of your strength. Everything you have, be generous to God and to others. Give it all for others because Christ has given it all for you. That's how the gospel transforms us. I wonder what detour you've taken lately on purpose for others. When's the next detour you're going to take for others with your time, with your trips? What are you going to give for the sake of others to be able to um, not just have their needs supplied for, but for them to resound in thanksgiving to God for the generous heart that he has produced in you? Jesus does say it is better to give than to receive. And you know that if you have ever been able to gift uh, anyone anything, you know it is such a blessing to your own heart. It is more so when you have sacrificed for it, when you've literally given something you needed for the sake of others. It is the greatest blessing you'll ever experience because it is a taste of what Christ has done. And we get to, you know, if you want to be like Christ and you want to be united to Christ and experience uh, union with him and feel what it is to be in relationship with him, then be like him, generous in all of your ways. And that's what we have the opportunity to do for the rest of our lives. It may not be financial, maybe with your time, maybe with your listening ears, maybe with your words of encouragement, maybe with notes, maybe with a phone call, maybe with just driving all over Timbuktu for other people. Be generous as Christ was generous to you. Let that grace that you've experienced in his generosity spiritually overflow in material generosity to others so that when they wonder, why would you do this? You can tell them, Christ has been generous to me. Can I tell you how? All of my need that I had spiritually, he dealt with. And it wasn't because I deserved it. It wasn't because I, I, I had the right words to beg for it. I simply came with arms open saying, I'm needy. And he gave it all. And that's what we get to do to others. What a great gift that God can do in us, in transforming us for his glory and for the joy of others. Let's strive to be that uh, individually, collectively. Let's be generous because Christ has been generous to us. Let me pray for you and for me to that end. Well, God, you are so generous to us. We do not deserve any of it. 
We don't deserve the love that you've given us, the, the gifts and abilities you've given us. The life that you've given us is all a gift. It's all grace. And God, we have received that grace with thanksgiving. And we want that thanksgiving to overflow in our generosity to others. We want others to see the sacrifices we're willing to make for them and for them to wonder why. And for us to be able to declare your generosity in the Lord Jesus Christ, giving his life for us, not because we deserved it, but because you deserve the glory. Would you produce that in us? We pray this morning in Christ's name. Amen.